Hello and welcome back to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, who gets sick from eating cold soup? That's a solid question. One I hope we do answer by the end of this episode. And I think to help us take a sip of that soup, we've brought in a very special guest. We have joining us Mr. Robbie McGuire from the Fighting on Film podcast. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello, nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. It's uh, rare that I'm the guest on someone else's show, so it's um, I'm a fish out of water, shall we say. So you're going to run amok now? Maybe, who knows? You know, by the end of it, I might not have any credibility left, but we'll see. Well, give it 90 minutes, anything can happen. Sure, true. <laughs> but um, before we talk about this week's film, uh, when we have guests on, we have to check their credentials a little bit. Check your papers, as it were. So... Um, Obviously, you've got the Fighting on Film podcast. Just tell us a little bit about that first. You know, how did what, what made you want to get into podcasting and war films specifically? Yeah, so I've I've always been always had an interesting history um, from an early age, and then I sort of left it alone when I went to university. I did drama, got a degree in it. Useful, who knows? Hey, I'm a, I'm an English major, <laughs> so you and I were on the same page. Exactly, we're both millionaires, right? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, we don't get you don't get into drama or history for the money. Let's just say it that way. Um, so I left it alone, and through lockdown, picked it up again. My love came back. Started writing. Started started my YouTube channel, um, just on my own. And then I, you know, went on Twitter, and I was like, "Hey, I'm a history guy now," you know, sort of thing. And then I met up with Matthew Moss, who's my co-host. He's in America at the moment. That's why he's not with us today. Um, he's giving a lecture at a firearms museum, I think. Um, and we got chatting one night and we were just talking about the war films that we liked. We, you know, we were sort of trying to top each other, you know, who could come out with a more ex- obscure movie. And then he turned around to me one evening. Well, you can't really turn around in a chat room, but he turned around to me and said, I'd love to do a war movie show, podcast type thing. And I said, sure, I'll do that with you. Completely forgot about it. Month went by, messaged me again. He said, are we doing that podcast, mate? And Fighting on Film was born and we're, we're what, two nearly three years into it now when we've just gone from this really small little niche show to getting you know i can't believe the heights we've hit and the guests we've had and it's just somewhere where you can come it's we say it's like desert island discs for war films because we just love the genre it's really it's important in terms of remembering the past but it's also important in terms of how we view warfare as entertainment and what comes out of that so i think i think we we have a good mix of the history element but then i think we also do a good job of, rem- of remembering that these films are entertainment at their core. Well, I'm curious, you know, wh- when it comes to like war films, what do you regard as some of like your favorites? Do you find yourself drawn to a specific type of storytelling? Um, I like, I like the sort of classic fifties war movies because the, especially the British ones, like my favorite the film I grew up watching my dad is like the super fan of it was 1953's The Cruel Sea. And that's about a, uh, a Royal Navy merchant ship and the uh, Commander Ericsson played by Jack Hawkins. And it's it's a, such a good film because not only is it a good war movie, it's also a good character study of men in warfare and how they treat each other, how they grow bonds, how they have to make life or death decisions, you know, on a dime. And it's just one of those great movies where it transcends its genre for me. It's a good war movie, but it's also a very good piece of cinema. And I think if you can hit that level then you're doing a really good job making a war movie because sometimes 
they're just B-movie trash and it's not worth talking about. But then again, sometimes you can pull great stuff out of it. But for me at the moment, it's Crawl C. But if you come to me like a few months ago, um, we covered a film called Nine Men, which is an Ealing Studio movie that was made in 1943. And that's probably the one of the rare gem British movies from the from the Second World War period, because it's one of the few British combat films that just deals with infantry fighting a battle. There's no, there's nothing else to it. It's literally, I think it's like 70 minutes of, of action. And it's really interesting. And, it's, and when it's made, it's made in a time where we've just had a desert victory in 1942. Things are changing in the war. And this movie is all about, you know, the resilience of infantry in, in battle. And that's a really great film too. But it varies, you know, it depends what I'm researching. It depends what mood I'm in. Yeah. It's it's interesting because that's one of the things that jumped out to me about your show, and I think we I got chatting with you online originally because of this, is because much like ourselves, you kind of deep dive on the subject of war films, and you don't just do what I would call the highlights. Mm. Yeah, of course. We do the same thing. Yeah, well, we go back to the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and we get stick mm. online for covering films that people don't know as much, but I think yeah. the idea is to talk about those lesser-known films and to put them back into the like the public eye. Yeah, that's the point of the show. Like when we started it, we said, "Look, we're not we're going to hit the big ones, but if you did the big ones every month or every week, you'd be done in a year. You'd, mm-hmm. yep. you'd be stuck for content." But the that's the great thing about the genre, as you say, you can go back to the early days of cinema, and there's war movies. You know, as long as there's been film to film it, people have been making films about conflict. It would seem um, you can go back as far as like the Boer War era, and they're making little short films, silent movies about those battles. Um, in the I think, early 1900s, late 1800s. And, you know, it's it's such a all-encompassing genre because I think nowadays it's more how we how we view combat, how we view history. I mean, certainly if you're a historian like me, you know, you're going to go off, you're going to read books, you're going to look at first-hand accounts, you can do all that thing. But people in the cinema, that might be the only chance they ever see, or only time in their life that they ever see that battle or that war represented. So you've got to do it right. You've got to pay heed you've got to you know do your research make sure it's right but then also you've got to make it entertaining because if someone comes out and go oh that was rubbish you know they might think that history's not important so it's such a fine line and then obviously getting to cover all these different war movies you can sort of cover the spectrum i'm sure as, as you do with your spy work because you know i didn't even know there was a 50s version of casino royale till i listened to your episode on it <laughs> i was like really <laughs> they tried to make that how many times Yep, yep. More than just the three that actually happened. There's several attempts really? making oh, wow. okay. But the, the three that have made it are the ones that you know of. But uh, mm. I, I do have a pitch for a film for you, one that we've already covered. And I think given your co-host's expertise in firearms, I think it's actually quite... Uh, oh, yeah. And that is the 1950s spy film, Springfield Rifle. Ooh, okay. Okay. It's, it's based around the American Civil War. Sure. So you've got your war aspect, and it's about nice. a it's about a firearm changing the tide of the war. Yeah, Matt Matt would love that. If he's not heard of it already, then I'm certainly I'll I'll, I'll take that to him afterwards. He's in America right now, so actually I probably might be able to do, so go look, get some footage of that of that rifle or something. Put the feelers out because uh, we we did a deep dive on it, and it was a a fascinating film to uh, decode. Mm. I'll write that down. I thought you were going to uh, pitch Operation Crossbow. That's where I thought you were going to go. 
that's another classic, isn't it? Yeah. I, crossbow, crossbow's great, but I feel like let's go for the really lesser known ones, like uh, Springfield mm. Rifle. That's well, it, just it would be, you know, it would be um, on type for us because we always say on the show we have like this little in joke where we go fighting on films, your favourite war films eventually. So it would be on brand. <laughs> That's good. That's perfect. <laughs> uh, yeah, stealing that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> well, okay. So we we got an idea of how you've got towards this film, which we'll introduce in a second. But let's check your spy credentials just really quick. We haven't okay. discussed this ahead of time, but you know, are you a fan of of spy movies? Obviously, you listen to Casino Royale. I'm sure you've seen that film. What's your thoughts? So, yeah, so I've seen that one, the the '06 one. I haven't seen the '50s one or the David Niven one, even though I do adore David Niven. Um, for me, my my probably my entrance into spy movies didn't really occur massively. I was into 007 when I was old, younger. Sorry, but I wasn't really a big fan. I just thought they were flashy action films. Didn't really think of them as spy films and then when the tinker taylor soldier spy remake came out i was i was absolutely cock hoop because i absolutely adore gary oldman and i was like wow you know it's his shot at an oscar so i went to the cinema the day it came out i was the only person under the age of 40 in the cinema i was looking around <laughs> thinking well, hang on where's all the gary oldman fans <laughs> who are under the age of like you know 40 <laughs> and i was i was mesmerized you know i thought it was one of the one of the best remakes probably that british cinema has done recently then I tried to watch the Alec Guinness series, and I was like, "Gosh, this is slow." I'm glad they, you know, cut this up into a movie because it's a little bit more palatable. Um, and then from that, you know, you, we watched um, the Harry Palmer films. Uh, I forget the name of the first one. Oh my God, Ipcrest File. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, mm. I, I love those sort of Cold War era espionage films when it was actually a bit life or death. You know, rather than James Bond hopping into a gyrocopter and machine gunning everyone, it's it's always a little bit. Not hokey, but I'm just like, mm, if, I want watch, if I want an action film, I'll get an action film. But if I want a spy movie, I want my spies to be like life or death, gritty, tense, that sort of thing. It's really hard to argue that there's a better 60s spy film, really, than The Ipcris File. I think we can all agree on it's that. So good. Just both of you stop. <laughs> just stop. Oh, no. On go- two years, this film has been haunting me, and it will continue to haunt me. I will never excise those demons. And you say you're not that big of a Bond fan, but you've turned up to the recording wearing the Ursula Andrus bikini from Doctor No. I, I, I don't know. Strange touch. Godness had fit over me now. I'm kind of a bit of lockdown lumber. But, you know. <laughs> lockdown lumber. <laughs> I'm using that. <laughs> it's, um, it's hanging on in there. No, I'm in, I'm in my, you know, I'm, I'm wearing my own podcast merch like an absolute shill. Uh, on brand. Um, but yeah. so Love it. Yeah. You know, I I loved those movies when I was little. I had the, um, do you remember they did the, I, I can't remember what came with it. It was like a magazine and then you got like a free gift with it. And it was like the 007 files or something in like the early thousands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you, you, you like put stuff together and you made like a, a file of facts. That was it. Yeah, yeah, I had all of those. I had like the cars. I think I had, I went to see Die Another Day the, like, the week it came out in London. That was quite a big birthday. I remember that. And then I watched it back a couple of years ago and I was like, this film's nuts. It's like what? The, what are they doing? You know, Sigmund Freud has yet to analyse it. It's uh huh. Yeah. It feels that way. But no, it's it. I like what they're doing with Bond now. You know, let's let's carry on the realism. I like that. I, I suppose the other question, just to check the credentials before we move on to the film itself, what is your favourite spy movie? So you're probably going to lament again, but it's it's Ipcrest File because it's just great. You know, it's Kane doing a. A role that we're not really used to Kane doing these days. When we forget, what I, I was saying this the other night actually to my, my wife, we were watching a thing about film theory, 
And I, I had this epiphany. I was like, I don't like it when actors become caricatures of themselves, like Michael Caine, De Niro, Pacino. They've become caricatures, but we forget for a 10-year, 15-year period, these guys were like the pinnacle of their craft. And for one of Caine's, like in that early 60s, mid-60s, he was just untouchable for the roles that he had. And I think It Crestfile is one of those movies you can just go back to. You think, however we remember Kane with all the sort of Batman memes that came out around that time and all the, you know, don't blow the bloody doors off type thing. That film, he gives a fantastic performance and no one's ever looked cooler holding a Sterling submachine gun. So there you have it. Well, uh, thanks for joining us this week. Um... <laughs> yeah, I'll see you next week, guys. Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, see you later. Signing off again. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, 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 I know, I mean, the Ipcris file made the knock list. It's one of the best spy films ever made. I can acknowledge that fact. I, mm-hmm. It's just not for me, which is, I think is entirely no, fair, fair. Entirely fair. Movies are subjective. That's, that's the great thing about them. I would sooner watch Jaws 4 than watch the Ipcris file. <laughs> oh. I'm talking Michael Caine films. <laughs> oh. oh. The, the, the film that Michael Caine famously said, I haven't seen the film, but I've seen the house it built. Absolutely. Uh, although not his worst role he he hated. That was actually no. a Harry Palmer film, funnily enough. Oh, was it? I've not I've not seen all of them. It's the T V movies from the nineties. The uh Oh they've had. Oh, oh, he had a bad yeah. time on that set. But that's in his like dip phase. He has like a yeah, you know, he comes back every few years, you know. You're best off not watching them. Just watch the trilogy. It's perfect in its own way. Sure thing. Well, yeah, I, I think you passed muster. Thank God. I think we've got the right man for the right job this week. So what is the job, Cam? What are we doing? Yeah, we are taking on the 2018 World War II espionage film Operation Finale, or I suppose post-World War II, really. But Mm. yes, dealing with the ramifications of World War II. Yeah, it's definitely got its roots in World War II. That's sort of where the story is born. But it takes place afterwards. Um just throwing it out there, I hadn't seen this film. It's it's on it's on Netflix. I think it went directly to Netflix. I don't know if it had a cinematic release. It did in the US, apparently. Um, Netflix had the distribution rights for outside. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm. Yeah, it was a case where uh, Chris White's the director. Um, I heard him on another podcast. Um, I think it was the Blank Check podcast around the time this movie was playing in US theaters. And he was there to, you know, promote the movie largely. And I had never really heard of it. I don't know if it opened in Canadian theaters. And if it did, it was very sparse. It had a, I think, somewhat significant US release, but not a heavily promoted one. No. Which is interesting, because you'd think it would open in Europe. Yeah. Yeah, I don't understand why they didn't. I would have thought, we'll talk about box office, but you know, I think it's safe to say this was not a you know smash hit of the year when it opened in the US and I think it was kind of that period where they just decided to go international with Netflix kind of like the way they did with the movie uh, Annihilation. Yeah, because around that time I think Netflix were trying to get on the Oscar scene and they were buying up distribution rights to like big movies and I'll, and I'll maybe I'll talk about the end about my view, view of Netflix and movies because I think that'll fit nicer at the end but like yeah it, I think it it benefits obviously from a lot of people seeing it, but I think it hurts the movie box office wise and review wise, perhaps. And just in terms of like presence, like it, this is yeah. not a film you would say, and people go, "Oh, Operation Finale, yeah, 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 I know that." Mm. Yeah, it's exactly. just on that Netflix algorithm now. Yeah, like if you name a 2018 movie that had a you know wide theatrical release, people will remember the title. Whereas if you name a 2018 Netflix movie, mm, mm. not quite yeah. as much. 
they're just on the precipice of like getting Roma and all that, aren't they? It's just a few years off. That's yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like then this is all of our sort of first visits of this film. Hmm. I was aware of it when it came out. It's been in my wish list yeah. for, for years, and mm-hmm. I just never got around to it because it's just again, it's it's on the Netflix watch list. I can come back. I can watch that whenever I want, and then it goes to the back of the brain. You never remember it again. And then when you mentioned it to me, I was like, "Oh, good. I've got an excuse to actually sit down and, and watch it." And I was in a similar boat where when we launched this podcast, I very quickly added it to our master list because I remembered it existed. And I thought, this is an excuse to sit down and watch it. Yeah, that's uh, fair enough. And we're all here to talk about it. So for those who haven't seen it, here is your letterbox.com synopsis. Operation Finale. After World War II, Hitler's deadliest lieutenant escaped. In 1960, a team of Israeli secret agents is deployed to find Adolf Eichmann, the infamous Nazi architect of the Holocaust, supposedly hidden in Argentina, and get him to Israel to be judged. Yep. That's set it all. Perfect. Um, I will just mention at this point as well, later this week we are actually having an interview with the writer of the film to find out a little bit more about it. Mr. Matthew Wharton will be joining the show. Amazing. Um, That'll be. I'll be. I'm quite interested to pick apart this story with him, and and because this is a, mm. this is a, it's not a script that's been had any other hands in it. It's his script. Um. So I, I'm very fascinated to see what he has to say. Yeah, definitely. I think that'll be interesting. Um. But I guess the question goes to you then, Cam. Did you find any behind the scenes on this one? Yeah, I mean, there's not as much as when we're tackling some of the older films where, you know, books have been written about the development. But mm-hmm. this film, as you said, you know, you referenced Matthew Orton, the writer. Um, this was a spec script he had written that just got snapped up very quickly. And um, his background was he'd graduated from Oxford in 2010. This was his you know debut major writing credit. And um, he also produced the movie. And he was actually mentored by Matt Charman, who uh, wrote Bridge of Spies, who you know we talked to on the podcast as well when we were covering that movie. And um, this was a really fast-tracked production. Like... A lot of movies we talk about, they go through these various hurdles to get through production. This movie, in November 2015, MGM snapped up the rights and there was an announcement in Variety and what have you about this movie being fast-tracked. And, you know, like four months later, Chris Weitz was hired to direct it. Now, Chris Weitz has a bit of a, you know, fairly long career now in Hollywood. He's a very, like, stable studio guy. He started out with his brother, Paul Weitz. And they um, did co-writing work on movies like Ants and The Nutty Professor 2. Um, They also co-directed American Pie and About a Boy. And they actually both got an Oscar nomination for the screenplay that they also wrote for About a Boy. And that was kind of the launching point really for them was About a Boy. Once they got that Oscar nom, they kind of split apart and they both had very, you know, ongoing careers in Hollywood. But Chris went on to write and direct The Golden Compass He directed Twilight Saga New Moon, which, say what you will, that movie made an absolute fortune and probably helped him get a fair amount of things made in the future. I saw it on opening day. I I went as a plus one and I walked out. Oh, I I was the plus one, I can assure you, but I wasn't allowed to walk out. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) I was a third wheel and I was like, right, I'm I'm out. And and the the security guard was nice. He let me out in the cinema and let me back in with my McDonald's. (laughs) I was just like, I would have stayed in McDonald's to be yeah. honest with you. I wish I had. <laughs> it's like I was. Oh my god. 
Uh, he also directed A Better Life, which got Damien Bashir an Oscar nomination for Best Actor. And he also just does a lot of you know major studio writing on the side. He had a co-writing credit on Rogue One. Um, that was the one where Tony Gilroy came in and wrote you know a fair chunk of it. But uh, Chris Weitz would have been largely responsible for everything that happened before the reshooting. Right. So that's kind of what he was associated with. He also worked on the Cinderella remake, uh, The Mountain Between Us with Idris Elba and Kate Winslet. And, um, you know, then he moved really off of that stuff into Finale. Finale was his last directorial effort. And since then, um, he had a writing credit on the new Pinocchio uh, live-action remake, which came out, which was very rough. But if you look at interviews with him, he was writing it at a time where it was going to be directed by Paul King, who did the Paddington movies. So I don't know how much to really assign any blame whatsoever to him for Pinocchio. Yeah. I heard nothing but bad things about the film, but I never stepped out to see it. No. Oh, on step out. It's on Disney Plus. Yeah. Oh. Because a Disney Plus day one release, wasn't it? And I'm just yeah. like, they're just remaking their movies so they can keep the IP going. It's just exactly. You know, we're not. No one's oblivious to that. But at least try and make them somewhat competent. Like, how can you have Tom Hanks just wasted? It's just weird to me. I just called them copyright renewal for uh, movies. Yeah, it does seem that way. But yeah, so like he's got a you know ongoing career in Hollywood, pretty well known studio guy largely. Um, and what inspired this movie was his father was a German Jewish refugee who moved to England in 1933 before moving to the U.S. And um, his father had joined the army and worked for the OSS during World War II, and his specialty was counterintelligence. And after his career in the military, he became a novelist and historian and wrote biographies of many prominent Nazi figures. And Chris Weitz was his copy reader and grew up with sort of a connection to that part of history and saw this movie. His father passed away in 2003, but he saw this movie as sort of a reconnection for you know his earlier life and his father. So this was a very personal project for him. And a um, few other notes. Um, he hired uh, Avner Avraham, who was a 30-year Mossad agent um, and also the founder of the archives of the Israeli Intelligence Agency and Museum to work as a technical consultant because they wanted a fair amount of accuracy. And this is another interesting kind of family reconnection moment. There's a part earlier in the movie where we see the Haley Lou Richardson um, character sitting in a theater and she's watching a movie and on the screen it's the movie, the Douglas Sirk movie, Imitation of Life, which is very, very good. I recommend it to anyone out there. But the actress on screen is Chris White's mother. So there's a lot of family connections going yeah. on with this movie and the director. That shot, sorry to interrupt there, but the no. sh he recreates that shot that you see of the guy, of the woman being reflected in the mirror. And it's such a nice little nod to his mother's career and legacy. I, I absolutely loved it. I, the minute he did it, I was like Leonardo DiCaprio in um, Once More Time in Hollywood with the meme, you know, pointing <laughs> at the screen with my can of Miller light. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, the, it's great. I, I love it when directors do that. Lovely little nods. And it just shows that, you know, technically, you, it just works really nice. I love it. It's great. Lovely little tidbit. Yeah, I was really, like, pleased when I saw that. I was like, yes, good cinematography. And for uninformed people like me who haven't seen any films ever, it doesn't <laughs> It doesn't play off as, like, this big moment that you don't understand. It's just a thing. It's just there. Mm. Right. But then it also works really well because the subject matters are almost the same because, obviously, in the movie, in The Imitation of Life, the male character is absolutely shocked to learn that the... Uh, the lead uh, has black heritage. And then the same with Klaus Eichmann. You know, he's somewhat 
you know, I don't know what's the word to use, but he's, you know, probably enraged that the girl is Jewish because yeah. then he can't pursue her romantically like he wanted to. But it's a, it's a little nod. Just love, it's just good. It's just good filmmaking, isn't it, really? Yeah, it's a really smart touch. Yeah, for sure. Mm. And, uh, you know, the budget for this movie was $24 million. Domestically, it did 17.6. So that kind of maybe speaks to why they didn't feel confident in a wide global release. And as we said, it was Netflix uh, internationally. So like at the worldwide box office, it landed outside the top 200. So I really couldn't mm. say anything there. But domestically, it landed number 118 between Bad Times at the El Royale and Paul, Apostle of Christ, which was a film with Jim Caviezel. I had never heard of it before, but Bad Times at the El Royale. Good movie. I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good film. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised that's so low on the list of that year. It was not treated well at the box office. Yeah. Say no more. Unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, and the top three for this year, number one was Avengers Infinity War, number two was Black Panther, and number three, Jurassic Park, or sorry, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom. Franchises. Yay, reboots and franchises. Yay. Yeah. They're, you they're love not it. killing cinema at all. <laughs> yeah. Get in the theaters and watch them and eat your popcorn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I had a couple of postscripts. Um, Matthew Orton, he hasn't had a, a movie out since um he's got a few things in development but he did write i would argue the good episode of moon knight which is the episode asylum and i think people will know that who watched moon knight and uh chris white has said he talked a lot on the press tour for this movie that he would love to bring his father's life to the screen doing an oss spy film and that would be amazing spy hards um you know content for the future so hopefully that happens Hey, we're always happy to have more spy films being made because it means we can go for longer. That's yeah. right. That's right. And then we can cover them for the war aspect of them on our show, so it keeps us going longer as well. Exactly. <laughs> hey, th there's actually a ton of spy war films that we've covered so far. So, uh, there's a lot. So we've got a lot of like connective tissue between the two of us. Um, I, mm. It's strange this is the first one we've done, but I'm sure there'll be many more that we connect on. But we're here now. Let's talk about Operation Finale. Robbie, you're the guest. The question goes to you first. What's sort of your top line thoughts on the film? I really enjoyed it. And and I think it's a very important movie because of its subject matter. I like the way that it deals with its themes. It doesn't overly I don't think it, it obviously it doesn't try and say you need to hate Eichmann. It doesn't it doesn't lead you in any direction. It lets the I think it lets the viewer make their own mind up on Eichmann and what he did. Obviously, we know how he how he ends up. He's hanged for his crimes, um, which you know I think is probably what he deserved um, more than more than probably. Um, but the movie's very good. It's a very good sort of. It's it reminded me of Argo. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like yeah, because yeah. the the yeah. I mean the uh, the writer, not the writer. The music was by Alexandra Desplat, and he worked on Argo as well. Zero Dark Thirty. Like, there's a lot of studio and. Uh, a crew uh, sort of collaboration with Whites and the studio, but it did when they're doing the whole. Oh, okay, how are we going to get in? Who do we need? It felt really sort of Argo-y there, and it works. So it feels like a heist movie, and then it goes into this really sort of slow-paced. I wouldn't say procedural, but it it just go. It changes like pace, and mm -hmm. it does it quite well. And then it doesn't ramp up till the end, but the little ramp up you do get is really nice. But there's just the way that Isaacs and Kingsley play off each other. And it's just this whole sort of 
Or, you know, can you feel like this old man who gets on a bus and goes to work every day was this absolutely abhorrent man? And it's that whole struggle it, with, if you're watching it for the first time, it's almost, well, as I did, it's, you know, so I know about Eichmann and the trial and what he did, but you're thinking, could this man do that? And that's the whole point of the trial, isn't it? It's just one of those little anomalies of history where we think, oh my God, how could someone that quote-unquote normal do something so damn right evil as the Holocaust? It's just, it's bizarre. But no, the movie was very good. Yeah, it's that whole mundanity of evil thing with Eichmann mm. where the movie, I think, yeah, I think you're right. Like, it's smart that it presents him very matter-of-factly and lets you try to read something into him mm. because it's like he's kind of like all full of contradictions and ultimately, like, is there a satisfying answer? Not really. There's nothing like he could ever say that you'd be like, oh, right, yeah. okay. So it leaves it up to the viewer, which I think is a smart decision. He speaks in like palin, like not palindromes. He speaks in cliches like, "Oh, I was following orders." Oh, if a soldier doesn't follow orders, how are you expected to win a war? Things like that. And I'm like, "Yeah, but that doesn't absolve you of what you've done." It's it's the whole the freedom of speech argument that we get in the you know culture now. It's like you can say what the hell you like, but there's, you're going to face consequences if you've done if you said something that people don't agree with. And this is the whole sort of thing that Eichmann kind of leans into he's like oh well i was just doing what i was told it's like but you but on one level you just weren't though and he can never work that out he told um life magazine in 1960 he said to sum it all up i must say that i regret nothing yeah uh, it's just how can you you know you just you start to believe your own lie don't you and it's just i can't believe it it's, you know but you're right well i was i, I was sort of passing off at the point you said i i i, I might be have a slightly different take on the Eichmann portrayal in this which I'll, I'll get to in a bit sure. but i was reading a lot about the the article the the the, the banality of evil by hannah arendt who, who did this for the i think it was for the new york time or new yorker i should say and like this how this unassuming man who lives a normal life is capable of such atrocities and i found that a very interesting piece and and certainly that's i think that's well portrayed by ben kingsley in this he gets that across i know he did study eichmann a bit not too much but a bit. Mm. He made a point not to dive too deep into the character, which I think is probably a good thing. Yeah, I think yeah. so. And especially coming off doing something like Schindler's List as well, I, I can understand why you wouldn't want to give too much weight to someone. And but then again, I think he brings this, or he brings us, he brings this sort of normality to it. And he, it's, it's he's chilling, but in a sort of non-threatening way. That, that that it's just Kingsley being Kingsley doing a really good job with the words that he's got. I've never seen anything with him in that I've ever hated. You know, I thought he was actually quite good in that Iron Man three um, yeah. cameo that yeah, he had. Sure, playing you know playing a completely different type of character, but it's just like he's just great, isn't he? And he's and he goes good chemistry with Kings uh, with um, Isaacs, and he has good chemistry with the rest of the cast when they need him to, but. It, you know, the film's not really about Eichmann. It's about whether they're going to get him out. And I quite like that as well. Um, what about you, Ken? What did you think? So this one I thought really worked. Like it was very, I guess the word is solid. I thought, mm, I, I kind of fall down where it's like, in terms of the subject matter, it's inherently interesting to me. This is a subject, you know, like I, I too love watching, you know, World War II films and watching documentaries. So like if you present me with a sort of fact-based drama based on an actual event in World War II, 
it's easy fodder for me. I am someone who has many different tastes. Uh, Scott, we often joke about how I'll watch any bad shark movie, mm-hmm. but the same could be said. Any World War II film is going to in- interest me on some level. And I thought this one, because of the representation of Eichmann and Ben Kingsley's performance and the intrigue surrounding it, I thought it was quite effective. Um, I think for me where I kind of, there's like a line where you can like cross into like greatness versus I think being a really solid example of the genre. And it's this is a movie that I would recommend people watch. But like when I look at something like, you know, even going beyond World War II, but you look at something like, you know, Munich, for example, which has similar kind of subject matter in certain ways, or Argo, which we've referenced, I feel like they kind of exceed what sort of the material is and are striving for something a little bit bigger, they're trying to say. And I don't think that's what this movie really tries to do. It kind of represents this mission. I think it does it in a way where there's some suspense, there's some great character work, but there's also some, you know, Hollywood writing kind of going on here that graded on me in parts. There's some elements that I thought were a little iffy. Um, There is a finale that felt not so fresh coming three years after Argo. Uh, felt very familiar when you do a little bit of research and realize that the extraction of of Eichmann was, I think they said, like one of the easiest jobs they ever had. And so there was obviously a need to create, because that's not satisfying for a movie, to have a two-hour movie where it's just kind of a walk in the park. Like, no one wants to watch that movie. But, you know, the fact that it felt so Argo-like was a little bit bit frustrating. But overall, I thought solid. And to be fair, Argo did the same thing. They mm-hmm. had a very easy exit from the yeah. country, but they, they ramped that film up for dramatic tension. Definitely, mm. definitely. But that arrives three years earlier. So it's kind of like that movie's done. You can't repeat the exact same trick. And I think also just the way that Argo built suspense was more effective than what this did. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah the whole sort of are they going to escape or not? I was like, well, I know they get back anyway. So... You know what you can. What are you going to do to try and like stop them? And then you've got this whole, you know, the the the, the gang led by, uh, oh the oh, I forget, is it Clowder? The oh Klaus, Clow no the yeah Klaus, it's Eichmann's son and the and the Argentinian guy, mm. the the lead the Sieg Howlman, who you know, very fervent Nazi in the movie. I'm like, but I know that they didn't do that. I would have much rather the film lent into the how the world how the world dealt with them the israeli mossad agents doing what they did because there was outrage in the un there were a lot of countries that derided them initially they were worried that it would make it easier for you know extraditions from any country or to, for, to anyone you know, it would make that sort of easy and commonplace so i would like if they lent into that a little bit more because there's a lot more you can do there with the sort of well look you know we're getting him out but no one wants us to do it there's there's a there's an interesting story that they don't tell, but they rather they would just make this cat and mouse are they going to get out or not? I just think there's interesting ways you can tackle it. And it's a tough balancing act because I think as a delivery system, it's a movie they're hoping to open in theaters and have a you know general audience show up and be kind of brought into a historical account. Mm. You make it a little too dry, you lose a lot of the audience. So I understand like why they felt the necessity to, to do it. It's just like I feel like I've seen those elements done a little bit better. But I also understand the instincts from the point of view of wanting to make a movie for a, a mass audience and mass appeal. Yeah, 100%. I think I'm... I don't think I was as hot on it as either of you were, to mm. be fair. I think for okay. me, like it does 
it does everything right in a sense like it's trying to build tension it has interesting character moments it questions what we know about the character of eichmann it, it it's forcing its viewer to sort of question what they know and and even throughout the film it even doesn't exactly confirm he's eichmann for a good amount of time it makes you question whether he is eichmann mm. i like all these things but i don't think at any point i was ever ever really drawn into it apart from one mo- one sort of section of the film which is the sort of character study moments between Oscar Isaacs and Ben Kingsley where they're playing off of each other. I think that part is dynamite. It almost feels like a play. It's very staged. Like It feels like you could be watching that on, 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 a, on a stage. But mm. the stuff, the bookends either side, like there's like the romance, that feels very Hollywood. Like the extraction at the end doesn't really work. I, I wrote down uh, the ending is not sticking, it's landing, to use a plain pun. Right. Um, and either side just didn't really work for me too much. And so I was like, okay. At the end, I was like, oh, well, that was two hours. But I don't think at any point it ever really got past being like an okay film. Mm. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't hurt me. It didn't, it wasn't like a bad movie. No. But I don't, it, it was just it was three scoops of vanilla. Okay. Right. And I think for me, I was a little bit concerned because it felt to me a little bit slack off the get go. I felt like where it found its place was that there was some genuine suspense and tension for me built up in the first half. Like I thought the actual abduction of Eichmann was staged really well with the second bus. You know, it's the sort of sequences we've seen in things like Munich, but I thought like this one was handled well and there was just the tension of how they would pull that off. So there was bits like that throughout and even like what the, you know, Haley Lou Richardson's character is up to when she's like going to Eichmann's house and meeting him. Like there was enough scenes that pop for me that it was working because I mean, I've seen examples far inferior to this one where there's just nothing. It's like, there's no tension. It's mm. kind of one of those history comes alive docudramas that doesn't even really have that much to offer. Whereas I felt like this one, the filmmaking was at least good enough that it would pull me in at key moments. I think, I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. The film for me certainly picks up after they know they've, you know, they found Eichmann. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously then you've got the whole planning of the operation, picking the people, how they're getting in, and then obviously snatching him. I really like in those parts. Everything after that is really good for me. And I agree with you. The ending could could have just been dealt with a little bit more differently. It's, you know, this whole, oh, are they going to get away or not? You know, we know they do. I've said it earlier. But yeah, I, I, the scenes with, as, as again, I agree with, with Scott, the scenes with the um, Isaacs and Kingsley in the same room together, it could have been a, a two-person, two-act play, you know, on the stage of him trying to understand the man who, you know, killed his family, killed the family members, and six million Jews. It's you know that that works really well, and that day is the Oscar. That's the Oscar bait, isn't it? Right there, that's like. You know, best supporting actor, best actor. Hello, Oscars. We did this movie. Can you can you please nominate us, please? Because this is really good filmmaking. And then you know the Oscars are like, oh, you're on Netflix. We don't know. Yeah, I, I could like imagine a different version of this that was something like, say, Frost Nixon, where it's the two of them yeah. seated across from each other for two hours, and it's how this kind of psychological one-upmanship and competition between the two, kind of a chess match that would pay off in mm. a way. And you know what? I'd be down to watch that movie, but. I can also understand commercially why if you go to a, you know, a MGM, for example, and are like, here's this movie. They're like, we're not giving you any money. 
Well, it's interesting because you mentioned like the the Hollywoodization of some of the moments in the film, much like much like what Argo did. To be fair, mm-hmm. mm. uh, I, I think Argo does a better job of building tension throughout. But that's by the by. The bits that rub me the wrong way are the Hollywoodization moments, the airplane struggle, the romance, blah blah blah. blah. Like, I mean, Robbie mentioned earlier the whole the question of jurisdiction at the end that the Israelis have, have basically extracted someone from a country unilaterally without any permission at all mm. um yeah and that and i and in reality that offended a lot of people and, and a lot of people thought he should have been put to trial in in germany you know, or nuremberg and 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 done uh, given that same sort of procedure and that is an interesting part of this story that i would like to have seen but i can see the cogs turning in all of the executives saying hey but where's the big chase finale with oscar isaac's running and getting sweaty because we've mm-hmm. got a movie star and he has to look like a movie star. Yeah. There's some big, you know, Hollywood executive going like, but our goal had a, you know, all balls to the wall ending. You got to get that in there. You know, it's like that whole sort of thing. Like, that, that's Chain smoking, producibles. cigars. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I want a copy of Argo. I want lots of Oscars. You know, Is this exec like, from the 1920s? <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly it. We do it on the show. Like, if we have a you know, if we have like a, a head cannon, someone's going, you know, get me my contract players. I gotta have Oscar Isaacs. Oscar Isaacs gotta run down that runway as fast as he can. You know, it's like you could just see it. You can see it. Yeah, that's yeah. the whole problem with that ending. And he, when he runs though, it looks like he's running into a, a green screen. It looks a bit weird. The focus on it. It's a little bit odd. There's and a like, few green screen issues with yeah, the film if you look at it. Like it, yeah. it, it didn't look great. There's a moment of like I, I wrote a glamour shot of Oscar Isaacs where he's like drinking an espresso on a rooftop, and it's like a sunset in the background. It's <laughs> clearly a green screen. Going off piece there, but that leans into my whole thing of that they are trying to make Oscar Isaacs modern day Harrison Ford. Mm, yeah. If you see it, he's not quite action star, but he's suave, sophisticated. You know, he sort of plays the Han Solo type role in the new Star Wars uh, sequels. And I'm like, they're trying to do that in, in this movie. You know, it's almost like the George Clooney shots, you know, the, the chiseled jawline and, the, you know, the cool cut clothes. It's a little bit like that. They pre- do present this guy, the Peter Malkin character, they present him as a very sort of cool and suave man. I'm not, I don't even, he might have been in real in real life. I don't know um, enough about Malkin him, himself. But it's it's interesting in the representation. I... I take a I take Oscar Isaacs over Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> oh yeah, without doubt. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, and and even Nick Kroll in this. I hate Nick Kroll's comedy. I, it's not for me. Didn't like Big Mouth. I hated The League. I had a, a friend at uni who absolutely loved it and played it on repeat, and I was like, oh my god, please no. Huh. Um, but in this, he's great as a, as Raffi, um, who actually led the the operation um, in in the six in nineteen sixty. He's really good in this. I was so surprised. I was like, oh, they're going to make him have quips. They're going to make him, he's going to be the comic relief. But no, he played it pretty straight. I really was impressed. Well, I think um, before we sort of dig into it any further, let's, let's talk about things that we liked. Okay, mm. let's just go around, pick out some moments that we really enjoyed. So guests are always first. Robbie, something you want to talk about, something you liked. I like the use of flashbacks um, and how little they were used in terms of Eichmann's character. Because the movie could have easily started with Eichmann going through his daily routine in the SS, you know, of, of carrying out these executions, writing down orders, things like that. It could have shown you things that he did, but you get this nice little flashback of him rubbing ink off his off his shirt. You don't know that's Eichmann at the start. 
you think it's um, the uh, the Mossad agents writing out fake documents or something. That's how it's presented. But then you slowly, as Isaac's chatting to Kingsley, as Eichmann, uh, you you finally get the reveal of this this extended little flashback sequence where Eichmann goes and views an execution. And when it's finally played off, it it comes together really nicely, and you think, oh, okay, this is what this guy was responsible for. He's not this doddering old man who somehow found his way to Argentina in the four, late forties. He actually is this 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 SS uh, you know uh, leader who is is perpetrating all these crimes. And Kings Kingsley just plays it off. Eichmann just plays it off as if it was another day in the office. And that finally is the the penny dropping. For the audience who might have had thoughts in their head like oh how can this old man possibly do that that's finally the moment when you get it and that is and they don't overdo it they don't lean into it doesn't become like and i'm not saying any holocaust movies do this because the holocaust in in my opinion on film has been represented quite well and never feel like they're overdoing it but it, they're not leaning into the torture elements too much they're not leaning into the the blood and the gore too much where it becomes disrespectful it's given a really good level of um you know respectability to the people who are the victims and it's just it's not played off for anything other than to show you what this guy did and i think it's a really good use of flashbacks and also i mean it's not gratuitous about its use of holocaust that's the word i was looking for yeah, yeah. recreations because ultimately eichmann wasn't really there the way that they unravel these sort of these flashbacks to tell the whole story is kind of what inspired, you know, the machinery he created. But this was mm. not a guy who was visiting camps. So his memories would be tied to maybe this specific event. So it makes yeah. sense to showcase that moment and then just kind of have that stand as the representation until we get really to the end where they're showing actual, you know, footage at his trial. Yeah. So I think that was a smart call. Also, it's just interesting how they contrast that with, um, with Oscar Isaac's characters, also how his flashbacks also are kind of shown in pieces of his sister that ultimately come together towards the end as well and have a payoff. So I think it's a really smart device that is not heavy handed because, you know, we've all seen movies where like the flashbacks are super, super on the nose. I thought these two, the way they were employed in the technique of sort of building a flashback together, didn't feel like they were overly cumbersome, but were really effective when you got to the end of the movie. Mm. Yeah, they're gratuitous. Not, it's not gratuitous. That's the right word. Well, I, I like that it, it's it's only giving you a certain amount of information at a time, uh, and so you don't mm. jump to conclusions yourself. And, and that's one of the things. It's not my liking we pick out, but I like the fact that I didn't necessarily know it was him for a while. Like they could have had the wrong man for a good time. Because there's, I, I know you want to bring up the prosthetics later on, Robbie. And we'll get back to that. Mm. But like the, the, it's only the a small thing, though. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> but I, we'll get back to. It. But like it yeah, was yeah. interesting. They made him look slightly different because it, it you could see how they might be mistaken. Yeah, sure. Yeah, there is. And obviously you get the whole thing where um, in the real operation, you know, they they were going to go after Joseph Mengel. And then they get the whole thing of they, they kidnap the blind guy under the pretense that he's Mengel. Of course he's not. Um, you know, in the real operation, they wanted to go after Mengel, but they thought actually no, because we're already going to get a lot of heat off nabbing Eichmann. But no, you are right. I, I do like that whole thing of King, you think, is this Kingsley? Is is this Eichmann? Is this going to be Eichmann? And then you get the whole thing of he grabs Klaus against the wall. Yeah. You don't have to call me father. And you get, oh, okay, okay. You know, and it sort of unravels a little bit here and there. It's good. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I asked for like likes I wanted to bring up. I, I already spoke about the dynamic between Isaacs and Kingsley. Maybe we can go back into that later. But the thing I wanted to highlight, and it's not something that often works for me, but it did work in this film, and that is sort of the uh, nuts and bolts of the spy work. Cam likes to refer to it as the shoe leather. Um, okay. You you see like you see them practicing their plan before they implement it. It yeah. You, know, you think of a Mission Impossible film, and Ethan Hunt just turns up with the gadgets and does it. There's no like practice yeah. run. Um, there's no O group meeting, is there? There's no, no like, what we're doing. No, yeah. there's no like uh, you know briefing section. Whereas they're actually like practicing the stuff. They're gathering equipment, gathering intel, putting it together, casing him out, and then implementing their plan. And I quite enjoy seeing that done. And it, it, and even just as a springing off point from that. I mean, we've been going for two years now, and I think this is one of our first times where we've covered a spy agency that isn't what I would say a, a, a Western spy agency. So it's interesting to mm. see like Mossad in use, and and that is the main player in the film as well. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I think we've had movies where Mossad featured into it, but never as the like central figures of the movie. Yeah, it's usually the SIS or it's you know MI, uh, CIA or something like that. Yeah. 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 As for me, like something that I really liked, um, you know, I mentioned up front just like the tension of the abduction. But what I liked, because, you know, Scott, as you said, two years, we've watched a lot of spy movies and a lot that take very different tacks. And I liked how this movie showed us something we haven't really seen, which is this is all about an abduction, you know, of a Nazi criminal. And they get him. And then they just have to sit with him for an extended period of time. And a lot of spy movies keep trying to, you know, create new complications, new things they have to deal with. And here it's more like, yes, they need to get his signature, but it's like they also just need to kill a lot of time until the plane that they're going to get out of there. And it didn't create false circumstances of, quick, we need to move him around the house. We need to hide him, you know, before someone walks into the house. It didn't create those kind of false crises. It was more about this psychological back and forth of trying to get the signature and just trying to, probably for all the people there, get hard proof that this was the guy like that they feel like they've got the guy everyone involved in this mission has their own personal stakes in the matter and so everyone's kind of looking for some sort of catharsis or relief or something to kind of explain their own pain and it's more about this kind of bubbling cauldron of just these characters stuck with this guy someone who is just the worst human being ever and they're stuck with him for 10 days having to try to basically you know sit there and feed him take him to the bathroom and i'm sure just, you know, torture for all of them to have to do these things because they all want to kill him. And so it's kind of like the simmering tension for me came from that, how they would, I think all of them like the quick exit for this guy and they can't. Well, that's the yeah. section of the film that works for me the most is that is that small focused character story in the house. Mm-hmm. It's it's mm-hmm. just, it's the, that's the filling of the sandwich for me, but it's the bread that doesn't work. Right. Uh, yeah, I kind of, yeah, I can get, I can get, get on board there. I, and I'd like the way that also... Isaac's his character uh, Malkin and um, oh, uh, Aronoff, who plays uh, Aroni, they have this separate. They have two different ways of doing it. It's, I wouldn't say it's good cop bad cop because it's not. Um, but you've got Isaac's who wants to talk to him, maybe be a bit more human mm-hmm. to him. Yeah. And you've got Aroni who wants to be like robotic, almost being like, "We will grind him down. We will make him sign, you know, whether he wants to or not." This is what's going to happen, and Isaac's eventually manages to get a signature out of um, Eichmann by being a little bit more. I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it respect. That's the wrong word, but he at least 
treats him like another human being, which is something that he didn't do to Malkin's people, Malkin's, um, you know, family. So it, it works really nicely. It's showing how humanity can actually get you out of the situation. But being an, being anti-human got you into the, the Holocaust, started the Holocaust in the first place. It's all themes and it's all, you know, I have to pluck it out of the of the film, but it's there for me. Yeah, it's through exposing his own vulnerability and having a human connection, right? Like, I think that was a really smart way because, you know, if you look at the historical accounts, it was a little bit easier to get the signature. Um, but I think the movie's smart to kind of ground it, at least within... They're building tension through character development mm. and what they're ultimately trying to say with the movie. So I think that's a smart way to change it and make it effective. Yeah, I agree. I think before we move on to dislikes, I just want to touch on Kingsley's performance yeah i've got some questions about the portrayal of eichmann mm. which i think i'm going to bring up in my dislikes but i think kingsley effortlessly is terrifying mm. yeah there's moments where he switches it on and you're like you're looking into dead eyes yeah and that's pretty chilling um he does a good job with that i would say i think he does and it, it's this whole you know, as we said at the start, can this man have done these things? And then there are moments towards the end where you can tell um, Kingsley's trying to get a rise out of Isaacs to maybe let Isaacs kill him, you know, so he doesn't have to face trial um, and sort of you know, get away with it again. Um, and it's just Kingsley giving his angry acting and you just think, yeah, okay, you know, you, you've got it now. You know what this guy's done. And this guy probably knew what he did and probably did revel in it because he felt like it was nothing to him anyway. And you feel that out of him because he'd much rather regale you of tales about his father taking him to the toilet when he was younger than giving the spy, the, the Mossad agents, anything that they could use against him. And that, I think that's what's more, more shocking in the portrayal for me. I'm just like, you know, you know, you see him in the trial and he's just sitting there, I mean, the actual footage of the trial, you, you see Eichmann sitting there, his hand on his hand on his cheek, just doesn't care what these people are saying. Because yeah. in his brain, it's wrong. It didn't happen that way. It's not how I saw it. Oh, I, I just wrote some, I wrote some orders down on a bit of paper. It wasn't me. He didn't have the effects. And you feel that from Kingsley. And Kingsley is so interesting as an actor because he is not a big man by any stretch. But, you know, you see him in something like Sexy Beast and how unbelievably intimidating he is in that movie. And he has that same element here. And it's here it's more quiet and subdued. But there's always a sense that he's a scary individual and he's very, like, threatening to be in a room with. Even if he's not, you know, a big physical guy projecting strength, there's something about him that's just naturally quite chilling when he kind of turns that element of his you know, acting style on. It's very, very effective. The one thing is, I, I do struggle sometimes, and I don't really hold this against the movie, because I think ultimately, for what I'm looking to this movie for, it's effective. But I'm always not... I always struggle with when you have a movie like this, and the performance of Eichmann, to me, Scott, we'll get to your dislikes, and maybe you have some more issues with it, but like, the performance to me is so fantastic, and really does just like rise above all the scenes... But what does it say when the filmmaking is far more interested in his performance versus the other characters? And sort of the, the Nazi criminal is kind of like the showpiece of the movie. I don't know. I don't know. It's complicated and probably comes down to each individual viewer. Mm. 
Well, I think you, you're basically where my head is with it too. So maybe we'll just jump into that discussion because you've brought it up. Um, I watched an interview with Ben Kingsley earlier today about this film on the press tour for it on a, an American news channel. And he said, you know, the point is with these films is to humanize these characters, these people in history, because it means that we're capable of doing these things. It's not caricatures that did it. It's us that did these things. And we shouldn't forget that. And I completely get that side of his uh, where he's coming from and where the filmmakers are coming from. Yeah. But personally, I sit there and I just think you're humanizing the guy who literally dehumanized six million people. Yeah. And, I, and, and there's moments where you're like, you're almost made to feel like you should almost care for him slightly. And he, you know, his wife turning up, and there's like a like caring about his romance and things like that. I just sit there going, I'm not sure I want to see him as a human. I I want to see him as a caricature because I don't think he deserves any of my sympathy, despite what the film is trying to pull out of me. It's such a fine line, isn't it? And that's always the thing with those types of characters. I mean, you, you take Shinner's List for an example. You know. Uh, uh, Ralph Fiennes playing Eamon Goth you know, he gives this larger than life performance and there are moments with that movie where you're thinking hang on a minute are you, are you trying to make me like this man are you trying to make me think like him you know and it's a little bit like this movie is trying to do the same thing albeit on a smaller scale but it is a really fine line to tread where you where do you go into sympathy or you, you stay in um non-sympathy <laughs> that is, i can't think of the word but it is a fine line i think kingsley just does it like that i didn't feel the only times i ever felt sorry for him and it was purely from a human humanistic level was when he asked about his family because yeah. i can understand you know they they didn't do what he did you know they're his family obviously in some reason in some ways they are um in my opinion probably guilty of harboring him for that amount of time. Um, but then again, you know, if you're married to Adolf Eichmann, you're probably going to be a card-carrying soci socialism, not national socialist. Um, probably. Um, so, uh, on the other hand, do you care about them as much? But I, when he, he was up, kept asking Isaacs, is my family safe? Is my family safe? That was the chink in the armour for me. That's his weakness. You know, and, and Isaacs played, plays that, Malkin plays that off really well. And then when he finally gets what he wants, then he gives him the we think, yes, your family is safe. But I guess this is what cinema is supposed to do on some level, or some forms of cinema is meant to make us have these discussions and ask ourselves these questions. Mm. And I, I get, I, from listening to that interview with Ben Kingsley, I totally get what they were going for. I'm just not sure maybe I was ready to have that chat with myself about it, and I maybe just wanted him to remain this illusion almost. Like I, it, It's a hard thing to face that we as human beings committed this. Or a, mm. one of us did this, or many of us did this, I suppose. Um, and that is a hard conversation to have. Well, the filmmakers, um, just touching off of what you're saying, though, like the filmmakers on the press tour talked a lot about how they wanted this movie to feel very relevant because this was you know, during the rise of the alt-right movements um, throughout the world, really, but very prominently in the U.S. And so they wanted people, I think, to see that you know, great evil could come from people who have families and are concerned about them. But this sort of thing that is often kind of represented as World War II. I feel like World War II in particular kind of stands alone as this kind of like iconic part of history that people look at and go, 
well, that was crazy and insane. That could never happen again. And I think this movie really wants to show you that individuals like an Eichmann don't exist just within World War II. They exist at any time and can be, mm. you know, that switch can be flipped or they can be turned that way. And we need to be acknowledging them as humans as opposed to something that could not be replicated. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely so. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Well, Scott, the Die Another Day commentary is live, and we are getting dirty again with Harry Callahan with the third installment of the Dirty Harry saga, The Enforcer. It's going to be marvelous. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards but before this message self-destructs cam resume the spy jinx well let's let's take a look at some of our dislikes of the film my big one i think we've already talked about so robbie we'll go with you first something you wanted to discuss so i've got two little things really one thing that did annoy me was there was 11 mossad agents on that kidnapping um, of eichmann and the mission to to get him back the extradition I would think there were four, maybe three guys. It, it's just the ensemble is woefully underused mm-hmm, um, yeah. of the Mossad agents. I feel like once they get there, once they found Eichmann, the, the man that takes the photos is irrelevant. You know, the guy in the plane who you have this beautiful scene at the end where they get Eichmann on the plane, they're about to leave, he goes to shut the door, and you see that he has a tattoo of where he was in concentration camp and he has this this sort of sigh of relief that they finally got Eichmann on. Where the hell was he in the movie up until that period? There's so many little characters that don't get anything in this movie and I'm like well they've all got a hat in the ring they're part of this mission but you'd think it was Isaacs and the girl and maybe um, is it Peter? Not Peter maybe the other guy, the hothead character. Oh Mo- uh, Mosh? Or- Mosh yeah or him and it's just, I think that that annoys me in movies where you have an ensemble, you underuse them a little bit. Even Nick Kroll, I think, is under, underused a little bit. And he's meant to be the guy who led the mission. Even Melanie Lorraine uh, is sort yeah. of underused, I would say. Like, she has a little bit at the start and she has a, when they kidnap him. Because that's kind of the use of her character. She's she's the doctor. She is the medicine. She administers the medicine. But, like, she's meant to be the counsel for Oscar Isaacs. And I feel like she's just sort of mm. set dressing a lot of the time. She's just think- relegated to syringe holder. It's yeah. a little bit pointless to me. And then the the second thing that really that got me, and this is more of a makeup type of thing, but in the flashbacks they de-age uh, Kingsley a little bit. And if they were trying to do it to make you not think it was Kingsley, they did a bad job because it just <laughs> it just doesn't look right. He's too smooth, you know. It it just it jarred me a little bit. I got over it in the second flashback scene. I was like, okay, I know what you're doing, but I always I think in flashbacks you should just show the character as the age they are. Because right. I think when we think back, we've, we, we're looking at ourselves in the mirror all the time. We think of the, how we are now when we think back in memories, I always think. Um, so they should do it in movies. 
But then as Scott mentioned, maybe they're trying to make you think it's not not Clemens. Maybe they're trying to do that ruse there, which I actually think maybe now thinking about it afterwards, perhaps that is what they were going for on some level. It's entirely possible. Trying yeah. to trick the audience. I mean, mm, it, it, yeah. it, it didn't look great. It definitely looked quite amateurish. I, I, I wrote down in my notes, uh, X-Men The Last Stand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you mean there. Yeah, yeah. Is it Last uh, Stand? No, it's X-Men Origins Wolverine. Oh, you're thinking of the opening of The Last Stand. I was thinking of the uh, Origins when he shows they're up. They're both and, pretty bad. Yeah, they're both mm. awful. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Get it. Yeah. yeah that, that, I mean, they're both fair points. The, the makeup jumped out to me, absolutely. Um, wh- what about you, Cam? Something you disliked? Melanie Laurent is the aspect of this movie that really grated on me. And, like, she's, you know, really capable actress. And I think there's some stunt casting that almost feels like it's going on. First with, you know, Ben Kingsley, famous for Schindler's List, Oscar-nominated, playing Eichmann. But also, you know, Laurent um, was in Inglorious Bastards in an incredibly mm-hmm. iconic role. And so bringing her into this World War II espionage story again, you're like, uh, there's a certain amount of attachment going on that feels like it was stunt casting for the purpose of making up for uh, underwriting the character. Because, yeah, I mean, the doctor in the real mission was male. So they are introducing her as this sort of romantic interest, I guess, for Oscar Isaac. And it feels like they want to develop this concept of someone who you know, wants to have a family and feels like he can't because of the missions he's been on and his lifestyle. And so that opens up this dialogue with Eichmann about the importance of family. And it's like the Melanie Laurent character is mostly there just to kind of spur those elements with the character. But like, this is not a particularly well-written role for, you know, an actress to have in a movie like this. And, you know, we've covered a lot of movies, especially period pieces where you have underwritten female roles Mm -hmm. um sometimes you get some good ones like where eagles dare for example Mm. um you know i thought like the Haley lou richards richardson stuff was really strong out of the gate and then that character just kind of leaves you know there's not so much the movie has really to do with her at a certain point but like you know more exploration there might have been interesting it just felt like with those types of characters the movie didn't have time but as robbie said like the supporting cast in general it kind of cut bait on at a certain point and i guess they're just mm. falling victim to the same thing yeah it feels that way doesn't it and then i thought the villains were a little bit caricature-ish a little bit weak yeah like i never felt that uh, uh eichmann's son and his band of motorcycle baddies were really <laughs> gonna do anything that was a bit weird you know yeah and and uh, you know the police themselves are quite menacing because they're just you know methodical they you know they're, they're at the time argentina was a fascist dictatorship anyway so you know they're mirroring the nazis i guess and then you've got this whole um the pepe Rapazzotti character that i think is Claudia, the, the, the big bad um nazi who gives the uh the sort of speech where he starts sea kaling at the end i thought oh this guy's going to be such a you know big bad protagonist he just boils down to man in suit telling a group of policemen where to go and i'm like he didn't really set him up properly you know and i had to look up who he was um, after and, I, and he's genuinely was an Argentinian-born German who was in the SS, and he was friends with Eichmann. And I'm like, but you could have played into that a lot more. There's just so much. It, instead of making this whole made-up ending, you could have played. You could have taken time from that and sort of gone. Look, you know, I think you need to play a bit more careful, Eichmann, because people might think you're him. You know, there's there's a lot more you could do 
with those two characters knowing each other. It doesn't really happen. It's a shame. You get a glimpse of it, but not enough. Well, it's really like a... It's a case of like that both Isaacs and Kingsley get like a massive serving of dinner and everyone else is just picking up the scraps. Yeah, to quote Star Wars to Isaacs, one quarter portion. Quite right. Yeah. <laughs> and like uh, the, the Mosh character played by Greg Hill gets the most because he's the hothead. Like he becomes the character that's the, uh, you know, uh, yeah. the element that could upset the apple cart. But that's more of a plot function than like a real true character. Uh, function yeah and the other one that bugged me you mentioned cam was like the Haley lou richardson which i think she had a really good start and mm. i i guess the point of her character disappears so maybe there is no reason to keep her around yeah and like you get her sort of wrap-up ending at the end rescuing her father but i know she she put a lot in the start i, I would like to have seen maybe more of the fallout of her getting involved because like she you had all these Nazis running around trying to find them, but maybe she could have been terrorized more. Not that I want to see that mm. necessarily, but they could have done some more to ramp up tension as they're like taking out all of their friends in town as yeah. they're working their way towards the safe house. Yeah, you're right. They underused Klaus as well, Klaus Eichmann. They, they could have had a really nice scene between each other, you know, being like, how can you live with your father being this man? Mm-hmm. You know, and there's so much you could do with his character, and he's just relegated to, you know, drive, as I said, driving around on a motorbike trying to find him well you could have had like the consequences of of both klaus and uh hayley lee richardson's sylvia like maybe he turns on her and it gets a bit mm. more visceral perhaps and we do yeah. see that with actually funny enough my dislike uh, we see that with the um graciela character who's one of the jewish locals who are aiding them in the safe house who mm. turns on a dime because she needs some money um, yeah, we mentioned there's some pretty like some little tropes in this film that like pretty easy, silly little story beats they put in just to plot it out to sort of stretch out the runtime probably. And her inclusion, I I just felt like I knew she was going to flip instantly when she asked about the money, and it was just a matter of time until she did something. And then the minute she, she saw the dollars, she was yeah. like, "Ooh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's coming." Just predictable, really. And I found that to be irritating. And then obviously she gets a quite a harrowing final scene. Yeah. Which maybe maybe it was to get to that. Maybe it was to give you those to those villains a moment of like, oh, they are out for blood. But you could have had you could have had them taking out one of the Mossad agents instead, and not had her character completely. And then it would have added more stakes because they've taken out an agent. Hmm. Um, I don't know. That's just me. I, mm. I yeah. In terms of, I think my other big dislike is the one I mentioned, and and I just think the ending doesn't really do much for me. I would like to have seen more about what happened when they got home yeah but, that that's another gripe i have that they they could have showed more of the trial mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i mean there has been other like films and documentaries made of the trial i think yeah i watched the the eichmann show that martin freeman and uh anthony lapaglia did um i watched it on amazon prime actually you can rent it really cheap and that's really good it's almost like a sequel to this um and they use the footage and it's all about how they televised it it's really really good um, and I just wish we had a little bit more of that in the show. Because you go to all this effort, getting the lovely set for the trial, and you have about two minutes of it. I thought it was weird that they kind of engineer this, you know, daring escape they make. And it's like, oh man, Nick Kroll and Oscar Isaac are left behind. And then it just cuts to them back, like in Israel at the yeah. trial. <laughs> I'm like, all good. I mean, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, really? Like, because mm. you would get the sense that Oscar Isaac's character Malkin would be arrested 
or something the way that he's yeah. left mm-hmm. um nope and i mean in real life you know what happened was he was never gonna go like they were going back to basically organize the safe house and then get it back to the original state and then leave uh but they kind of like create this weird climax where it's even odd because they mentioned there's kind of this breadcrumb earlier in the movie where they're talking about russian torture and how they extract toenails and then jab you with adrenaline to keep you awake. Which is almost like putting in your head the types of torture that they could have you know, put on them if they're captured. So when you have Oscar Isaac then running to deliver the permits to get the plane to freedom, I think in the back of your head you're supposed to be questioning, like, what is he going to face for making this sacrifice? Eh, not much. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, he just trans- like, you know, vaporizes back in Israel. For yeah, the, for the audience. So yeah, I know. I didn't notice that till you mentioned that. Yeah, I was, wait. Uh, I'm going to take a phrase from the uh, pitch meetings from Scream Rant. But I watched this with my other half, Hannah, and she saw that sort of him running off the plane, the dramatic save with the papers, and and she was like, "Oh, how's he going to get out of this?" And then it, nothing happens. She's like, "Oh, that was super easy. Barely an inconvenience." <laughs> it's true. It really is true. I, uh, sh- they needed to get him back to Israel. I get it, but. It, mm. Yeah. Either don't set that stake up or have it like have it pay off with a, one of those lesser known characters that you could just say died because if there was only a few people there really you could you could kill or you make a new character that didn't exist and then you can kill them off. Mm. I don't know. Or just at least have him like slipping out the back somewhere into the you know to freedom or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he could just yeah, he could mm-hmm. just get in a car and ask someone to please drive, you know, please go. He could just done something like that or hire the taxi or something. It's just Oh, gosh. And then the other thing, quickly, is I did feel at the start, not in the middle, and then a tiny bit at the end with Kroll and Isaacs, there are a few too many quips for me. Yeah. In, if, in the writing at the start, there's a few, I can't remember them exactly, but I do remember thinking, yeah, okay, I, knew, I know you wrote American Pie, I know you can do quips, you, you don't have to, this is a film about a serious subject, let's not have too many. And then luckily they didn't, but I was like, Mm, I know it's the age of Avengers and people talking quips. They don't talk in actual words anymore. But you know, can we can we stick to it a little bit? And thank God they did, because um, I was getting a little bit sick of it. I often wonder if there's like just this absolute terror when it comes to these historical kind of recreation dramas of this just absolute terror from studios of this is going to be dry, this is going to bore the yeah. audience, and it's like they inject these little quips. There was even kind of an odd one where it's like a training thing and Oscar Isaac says like you're waving uh, at my crotch in a weird way like it's kind of like this weird quippy line and there's nothing else like it in the rest of the movie but it almost feels like this like we need to kind of keep the audience engaged and entertained because we don't want to bore them with kind of like dry exposition yeah no you're right and even the bit where Kingsley's in the bathroom and I'm like you're trying to show what these guys had to do to endure the time with him. But that story in a way little played a little bit for smiles. Tiny bit. Right. And uh, it just leaned into it a little bit and I was like, please come back and it did. But I was just like, hmm, let's not let's not start to make jokes about, you know, crime crime criminals against humanity. Let's not do that. Well, I think that's where my problem that's that's my dislike is is this these sorts of things. Like him in the toilet was and it was played for like yuck yucks. Uh, there was um, one aspect of that I actually liked, though. Was he, like, cracked a joke about, like, the perfect German, and the the Mosh character, like, laughed and then immediately left the room. 
And I liked that because it was he'd connected kind of in a small way on this human joking moment and had immediate revulsion. So I thought like if the movie was more interested in developing like what that character was emotionally going through, that would be a really, really interesting moment. Yeah, mm. completely agree. Well, I think before we look at the knock list, I'm just going to throw out to any final thoughts. I actually don't have any left, I believe. Uh, Robbie, do you have anything for us? Other than I think that the Netflix release of this really hurt it. You know, I do think there was maybe some awards to be had at some level. Because um, I think the sound design's nice. I think the the, the production values are really good. It, I just think the score, the score's lovely. Yes, yeah, yeah. really nice score. Um, and I just feel that it, we're getting into it more now. But at the time, it was quite a novelty for Netflix to buy up a, you know, a, a mainstream movie and stick it on their network. Still, it was still quite new. But I think as as we go along, all these movies that are about you know twenty thirty million you know mid tier budget movies we call them mid tier on the on the the the, fo- the fo- podcast um I think it hurts them because if they put it in cinema this would have made a profit no doubt um because of the the star power at the time of Isaac's you know the watchability and star power of Kingsley I think it would have made its money back it probably would have had a decent shot maybe Oscars run for something. And I just think it hurts it. But that's more my view of movies in how they are being um, con- consumed and how they're being watched now. Um, but I just think it's a shame. It's a real um, reverse situation with uh, Operation Mincemeat, which came out more recently, where it played in theaters, you know, for you guys. And over here, that was straight to streaming. There was, yeah, no theatrical whatsoever. Mm. It did okay over here too, I think. It did okay. Right, it did good. I think it did okay in the sort of money. I don't think it did okay in the critics. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't the hugest fan, I have to say. <laughs> no, uh, I had Matt live live messaging me when he was watching it, and he was not happy, to say the no, least. I mean, I hadn't read the source material, but um, yeah, mm. not 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 my favorite uh, World War Two film. Uh, Cam, any final notes? Um, just a couple small things. Um, there was the shot of Eichmann watching birds in the sky. I thought that was like a really cool shot. Like it, it maybe drew a little bit of attention to itself, but I thought it was very like memorable and it'll probably stick with me. Um, and then just kind of like a silly one. There's a part where they're doing like a workout and basically doing, you know, like squats in the room, Eichmann with Oscar Isaacs. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly had flashbacks to Roger Moore's um, Live and Let Die Diaries where he talks about getting up every day and doing his knees-bend workout. Mm. Now, Scott, is that a knees-bend workout? I mean, I worked in the fitness industry for a very long time. I've never heard squats referred to as a knees-bend workout, but technically, it bends the knees. Mm. There you have it. There you go. That was the uh, that was the knees-bend workout. It was 50 squats. Oh, mm. Okay. Okay. Mm. I was I whenever I think about Bond working out, I always go right back to Casino Royale sixty seven. With that chair machine. Oh <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Weird connection. Yeah, I, I the only thing I wanted to mention in like my sort of final notes is I, I was looking on IMDB and this was in uh Watch Mojo's top ten failed Oscar bait movies of twenty eighteen. Well, that is another question I had because this movie, I think, I think in uh, U.S. theaters they put it out in like September or something like that, and the fact that it was fast tracked, the fact that they had the sort of historical drama with like what could conceivably be a big Oscar performance from Ben Kingsley, 
I almost wonder if they realized this wasn't going to be an Oscar movie, which is why they put it out in September versus more like a November, December. And that kind of explains how it wound up theatrically and then streaming. Like, they just realized it wasn't going to be an Oscar movie. Cam, it, it is an Oscar movie. Oh, oh, well, that's good, Scott. I <laughs> <laughs> just got that. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, not the Oscar they won is. You know, no, no, probably not. They, they got an Isaac. They wanted an Academy Award. Yeah, yes. they had to. They had to pay for this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very true. Very true. No, I think you're right. It yeah. makes sense. It makes sense to me. I, I, I hear about these sort of failed Oscar bait films uh, from year to year, but I, I don't think I could tell them apart from Oscar winning films half the time. To be fair, I don't. I don't know what tips it over. No, I, I often feel like is it just is it studios putting that out there. To be like, this movie should have got an Oscar. So everyone goes, oh, it's meant to be, it's meant to got an Oscar, but it's good. Perhaps. Maybe that's just the marketing thing. I don't know. I don't know. I tend to find, like, there's always those ones that will sneak into maybe an Oscar nomination or something. You know, a uh, extremely loud, incredibly close, or the reader or something like that. Where you're like, this is pretty vanilla, middle of the road stuff. But I tend to find the movies that typically do really well do stand out from movies like the more middle brow stuff yeah i think yeah i think this one could or couldn't of i think it's hard to say but i know that the academy does like movies that are based on real events you know and and they absolutely adore movies that are based on the film industry as well you know there's one there's one coming out is it called oh it's got what's his face in it brad pitt coming out and it's about the Hollywood in the 20s, that's got Oscar written all over Oh, it. Babylon. Yeah, yeah. Babylon. Yeah, I saw that and I was yeah. like, how many Oscars do they want for this? Yeah, anyway. But I look at a movie like Zero Dark Thirty, which is kind of doing something kind of like this in a way that uh-huh. I find much yeah. more compelling, artistically ambitious. That movie is like total Academy darling at the time. But I look mm. at what that movie's doing versus, say, what this is doing, and it's night and day. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about Oscars. I'm looking forward to seeing how. Um, Netflix's uh, remake of uh, All Quiet on the Western Front is coming out into this month. I'm dying for that. Yeah, because that yeah. that's got Oscars on it. I know it's ger- it's going to be Germany's entry into the foreign mm-hmm. film um, Oscar, but I just think yeah, I saw the trailer and like, it's got Oscar written all over it. I've heard some early reviews. They say yes, it might do very well, um, but I'm not saying anymore because um, I would get in trouble. But um, <laughs> it's it's meant to be meant to be really great, and I hope it. Hope it gets you know good reviews. And I love the original. I saw it on the big yeah. screen a handful of years ago, and just phenomenal. Exactly. Like Lewis Milestone, we just did Pork Chop Hill a couple of weeks ago, and it's just one of the great war movie makers. It's just the way you do it, and Milestone's just one of the one of the really good ones. Yeah. Well, I think we've reached a point in the episode now where we have to tackle the big question, the question that we look at every week, the mission statement of this show, creating the list of the best spy movies of all time. Guests always go first. Robbie, you're up. Yes or no, Operation Finale, is it making the knock list? I want to say yes, but as a caveat, with a caveat to it. So I agree this movie should be on the list because it's a very good movie, but I don't necessarily think it should be on the list because of its spy movie element, but it should be on the movie because it tackles with a subject matter as important as the Holocaust and bringing the men who perpetrated it to justice. So I think it's it's not a piece of en- it's it's not it's entertain it's not entertaining but it's a piece of entertainment that you can watch and get an understanding of how these things happened how they occurred how the men were brought to justice 
Um, and there's really good spy elements in it too. But I just think we need to remember that at its core, this movie really is a Holocaust movie. It's not really a spy movie, although it's it's a hybrid. But I think it's got a lot more themes in there. They're a lot more deep than might might be. Um, there might be uh, obvious from the trailer, shall we say? A surface level. Yeah. But yes. Okay. Yeah. To to say. Sure. Okay. Well, that's one yes. So definitely all to play for. Cam, what about you? I fall more into the not quite kind of category where like it is tough because like I would like representation for something as serious as the Holocaust on the knock list. And we may have other things. Nothing is popping to the top of my mind. Um, But for me, like just the filmmaking just doesn't live up to, I think what I hope to see on a knock list movie, Um, you know, zero dark 30, for example, did make the knock list, um, which to me just, in terms of what it's offering, kind of spy cinema stands out as so much more impressive to me. And this is one that, as I said out the top, like I would recommend people who are, you know, into, you know, World War II espionage films or just World War II kind of docudramas, check this one out. I think it's really, you know, engaging and interesting, but I just don't think it kind of clears that bar for me to give it the, you know, the pass for the knock list. Okay. Yes and a no. So my vote counts, which is rare in a three-way sort of battle for the knocklist. It's nice to have a swing <laughs> vote here. Um, I'm going to go... I mean, it's probably Telegraph because I was probably the least hot on the film of the three of us. <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of tension going on, Scott. <laughs> Much like the end of this film. Um, oh. I I was just looking at the knocklist while you both were talking and we haven't once mentioned, but there is another sort of Holocaust film that has already made the knocklist. What was it again? I'm totally blanking. Black Book. Oh, right, okay. right. Yeah, yeah. I've not seen that one myself. No, no. Well, it, it deals with like the occupation of Holland in the sort of dying days of okay. World War II. It, it's probably quite an apt film for you to tackle on the show at some point as well. It's very good. Paul Verhoeven, uh, director. Carice okay. Van Houten is the lead in it. She gives a wonderful performance. Um, but it also deals with... It's actually a lot more visceral than this film goes. I, that's not a plus I'm giving it. But I think mm. I think that film has better performances, much more tension. Um, and the spy work is also potentially a bit heightened for me in terms of operation finale i agree with what you both said i think there's there's great elements to it and i think if you're a fan of world war ii docudramas or you're a fan of sort of looking at history through sort of a cinematic lens maybe this is a good one to check out if you love oscar isaacs and ben kingsley great performances from both of them but is this on the list of the best spy movies of all time it's a no from me uh, but it's not one of those ones I'm going to say like this is a horrible film. Don't watch it. I think this mm-hmm. is an interesting film, an interesting film to uh, to to grow from, uh, to learn things from, and also an interesting film to discuss. I've had a great time talking about it with the both of you. But yeah, I I wouldn't put this up there with Bridge of Spies, Goldfinger, Day of the Jackal. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? It's, I think it's hard to categorize it because of its subject matter. Yeah, and even though it is a very good spy thriller, I think at some level you think. Mm, you know, it, it should it sit between these movies or can it sit on its own as its own thing? It's like we, we find it really hard on the show when we talk internally, when we have meetings about what films are going to cover. We think, you know, where do you put a film like Schindler's List? Yeah. How do you tackle it? How do you give it the the time of day that it deserves with the right speaking about it in the right way? You know, and, and, and making sure that the movie is viewed as a piece of education, maybe not as an actual war film, because it. 
they're in its its own special type of genre. I think mm-hmm. if that if that yeah. makes sense to you. Yeah. No, I, I agree, and I, and I was quite hesitant about talking about this film because, you know, looking over the last two years of our show, we tend to have a lot of quips and jokes about the films that we tackle, and I think. I think we've had a good discussion. I think we've sort of dealt with the film in a very mm. adult way um, and, and had the teeny bit of fun where we could. Um, and I'm, I think I'm glad how we've tackled it. But it, it it's definitely an interesting and difficult topic to discuss, but it should be discussed. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course, 100%. Um, but there you go, folks. One yes, but two no's. And as such, Operation Finale is not making the knock list. The dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Robbie, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us this week. Before we let you go, there's a couple of things you mentioned earlier and a couple of questions I have for you. Now, you mentioned your YouTube channel, but you didn't tell us about it or where it was. So where can people find it and hear more from you? Sure. So my YouTube channel, uh, you can search me on there. I'm RM Military History, my initials and then Military History. I try to cover uh, sort of all periods, really. I, I sort of start in about 1900 and go up to the present day. I haven't done anything. Oh, no, I actually have did something about Alexander Hamilton. So I do go pre-1900. Um, but my most recent video was a video about a Cold War British Army exercise called Exercise Brave Defender where it was a test of um, how they would defend the United Kingdom if, if there was a Soviet invasion in the 80s. So that's my most latest one. And yeah, I've, I've done interviews with historians like Peter Caddick Adams on there, um, Paul Woodage of World War II TV. Uh, I've also had interviews with uh, Falklands veterans for the 40th anniversary. So I like to think there's something for everyone there. And even if you don't like history, I mean, give it a go, because there's always something you can get from it even if you're not interested, I always think. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, that's my channel. Well, we'll put a link to that. And please subscribe. That, that's <laughs> yeah. implied. That's yeah. implied. Um, we'll put a link to that in the show notes below so you can click on that straight away oh, and head on you. over. And in terms of fighting on film, one question I try to ask whenever we have a guest who's a podcaster on is what's a good episode for our listeners to move on over and check out for the first time? Have you got any sort of spy war films that you've tackled so far? Oh, spy war films? No, we haven't yet. I don't think we've tackled any of them that you've done. Um, but one on episode, I would say, um, that are really good. If, if any of your listeners are fans of Kelly's Heroes, we did an episode on that with Peter Caddick Adams. Um, it's worth listening to that one for his oddball impression alone. Um, we did a, uh interview with uh, Jim Dowdle, a legendary stuntman who's worked on uh, Saving Private Ryan. He's worked on Fury. He worked on Enemy at the Gates. That's a really good episode if you love your stunts and you want to learn how they work. Um, and then a, a personal favourite of mine um, is a film that we covered called uh, Theirs is the Glory. And it's our very first episode we ever did. So it's a little bit rough around the edges. It was before we found our current structure. But I absolutely adore that movie. It's about uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Parachute Regiment in uh, Arnhem in 1944. And it's one of the rare war films where the cast is made up of the men who fought the battle the year before. And it's a really, really interesting and really important war movie. So, yeah. And you can find us all, all of the back catalogue on the show on, on fightingonfilm.com. Well, there you go. And we'll have links again to that in the show notes below. And I mean, I wouldn't recommend people go back and listen to our first few episodes. They're pretty rough, too. <laughs> yeah. It's it's the getting the edit right, isn't it? It's like a, it's a, you know, a crash course. 
yeah um i mean cam has been doing podcasts for many 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 years i was just a complete newbie at that point so i'm sure i was like quivering and shaking the whole way through i'm sure you can probably tell um but i yeah robbie i want to thank you for taking the time to come and talk to us about the film uh i urge everyone to go check out the shows uh, check the links below um but yeah thank you very much it's my pleasure well there you go that was our chat on operation finale cam the question goes to you sir what are we tackling next week well scott we like to mix it up and this may be the biggest whiplash we've ever had in the history of the podcast because we're going from operation finale to 1976's the pink panther strikes again (laughs) right okay yes that's definitely a whiplash Yes, um, you know, we like to tackle often franchises on the show, but this is a case where we're going to tackle an entry in a franchise that introduced spy elements because the Pink Panthers typically were like heist movies. Mm-hmm. And this one, I believe the fourth one in the series, kind of goes full spy. So that'll be interesting to look at. Okay. Okay. And of course, later this week, we have our chat with the writer of Operation Finale, Matthew Wharton. And in a rare occurrence, we're actually recording the review first and the interview afterwards. So there'll be some points that we've raised in this discussion that we'll be taking to Matthew as well uh, and getting his take on it all. So definitely check that out on the Friday this week. And then uh, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week for the Pink Panther Strikes Again. Uh, I'm sure your neck will hurt from the whiplash, of course. and if you liked what you heard on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you tell your friends because we like to be the uh, worst spies in the universe because everyone needs to know our name. And speaking of knowing our name, don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, remember... History only remembers the tall. What about Napoleon? Who?